0: Good morning, church. It's great to have you guys this morning. This is a, um, we're going to be starting a new study this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at this book. And over the last couple months, as I've been studying this book, as I've been reading commentaries and hearing what other uh, pastors and what other theologians have said, I have to admit, I am very surprised at the difference of opinions of this book it it kind of caught me off guard some people love it and some people just want to skip over it in their daily reading I told one of my pastor friends I'm going to be spending several weeks teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes and he's like several weeks how do you teach over several weeks over a book that has one sentence summary life is tough then you die how are you going to preach about that for weeks? So we're going to do it. But on the, the other side of the spectrum, there's been several books that are diving into the complexities of Ecclesiastes, trying to answer some of the questions. Some, some questions like, who is the author? And when was it written? A lot of people say it was Solomon was the author, and it was written in the, the 10th century B.C. sometime. Others say, no, it was King Hezekiah, who's a descendant of David. Right? He's not his direct descendant, but he falls in the lineage of David, which we see throughout Scripture, uh, that that would, that would still qualify as being a descendant of David. And it was written sometime in the 7th century B.C. So there's a lot of things going on in this book. We're not going to focus on those things. We're not going to look at those things. We're not going to focus on those debates. Instead, I want our focus to be on what is the main passage of this book. What is the, the thought, the purpose? Why did the author write this book Regardless of who the author is, the book falls into the wisdom genre of the different books of the Bible, and there's real wisdom in this book. The book tells us at the end that the, the wisdom comes from the one shepherd, which means God. So he's referring that this wisdom comes through from God, so regardless of who wrote it, if it's from God, there's some good wisdom in there, and so we're going to focus trying to glean that wisdom, we're going to try and learn that wisdom, we're going to try and see what it is that he is talking about. So go ahead and open or, or click on your Ecclesiastes in your Bible. So if you have an electric Bible, just click on Ecclesiastes. Uh, this book was written with a, a very distinct style. I don't know of a, another book in the Bible that is written in this style. And it's one of these styles where you... It's like a movie where you think you know everything that's going on. You're like, oh, I understand what he's saying. And then at the very, very end, they, they throw something at you, and it changes what everything before that meant. Right? Have you seen those movies when you're sitting in there and you're watching it, and you're like, oh, I, I know what's going on here. And then something happens, and you realize you didn't know anything. So you're like, my wife, when that happens, she says, oh, shoot, I have to watch this movie again. When I see that happen, I'm like, nope, you got two hours to entertain me. I'm not going back. I'm not going to go back and give you two more hours to watch this movie. Well, that's kind of how the Ecclesiastes is. And I think it's because of that that we see that big difference. We see why some people love it, and we see why some people not so much. Well, guess what? I'm the pastor, and I feel for those people that watched the whole movie only to be bamboozled at the end, and I'm not going to do that to you. right? We're not going to spend weeks in here and then say, surprise, and start over again. We're going to start at the end for just a, just a few minutes. So spoiler alert, I'm just going to tell you now, spoiler alert, if you found Ecclesiastes, go ahead and flip to chapter 12. It's the very last chapter, not a very big book, so just go a few pages to the right. And as you look at chapter 12, you'll see that the the author begins chapter 12 in verse 1. Remember also your creator. Remember also your creator. So as you read through this book, know that the author of this book knows that there's a creator. Right? Know that he knows that there is a God of all creation and of all life. And then he starts to summarize Ecclesiastes. He starts to summarize the book, and I'll do you a favor. We're going to cover that the next several weeks, so we're going to skip that summary. And we're going to go to the very, very end, which is chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 9. Let me read that to you. It begins like this. Verse 9 starts, "Besides, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Verse 11, the words of the wides are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed, uh, are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." The end of the matter, this is a a key point in this book, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so as we read the, the end of this, we know that this book was written to challenge you. Right? There's goats, and like when an animal's going the wrong way, you would hit it, and it would turn the other way, and that's what we see. This book is not a historical narrative. You don't just read it like you're reading a history book, and read, 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 and flip, and this happened next, and this happened next, and this happened next. It's also not a book like Proverbs. Proverbs is a, another wisdom book, but the thing about Proverbs is about every two verses or three verses, he changes the subject on us. Right, So there's all these different things to learn. There's all these different truths to learn as we go through Proverbs. We'll find out that Ecclesiastes has a main truth, a main theme, a main purpose throughout the entire book. The Holy Spirit, here you go. The Holy Spirit inspired Ecclesiastes to, to convict you of your own meaningless. Right? Your, your desire for something more as you're going through life and you're like, yeah, this is meaningless, this is meaningless. The, the, the book is written to convict you of that. To have you say, oh yeah, that is kind of meaningless. In order to make you desire something more. To make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. So it's in dealing with those frustrations that it's supposed to drive us to look for something more, something greater. It's to lead us to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that we are groaning for rescue right along the rest of the frustrated Creation. And as we search for other things to heal us or to, to restore us, to make us whole, to satisfy, satisfy us, to, to give us purpose, Ecclesiastes reminds us that we are just grabbing at air, that we're grabbing at vapor. And until we turn to our Creator, we will continue to be frustrated. Right? As we swim in this pool of meaninglessness, looking for that which can only be found in Jesus. My wife was laughing because I was trying to say that word a hundred times in this week. And so remember this as we read through Ecclesiastes over the next few weeks. Go ahead and take your Bibles. You can see what I did in my Bible. I highlighted. I underlined. These are key points and sometimes I need to go back to them as I'm trying to understand what the author was talking about. So remember that the author explores the depths of our meaninglessness not to not to draw us there but to point us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. All right, so let's go ahead and let's jump into this. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. It begins, "The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities," says the preacher, "vanity of vanities, all is vanity." What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All right, so just in those first few verses, we have a couple major ideas that we need to unpack right now before we continue with the book. First, the author makes his point. He makes his first argument. He makes it that life is vanities of vanities. Right, what he's saying is that life is as meaningless as meaningless can be. Like our life is the definition of meaningless. You can't get more meaningless than this the second thing that he talks about is throughout the book he's going to use this word and in, in my translation it's considered it's translated vanity right the word was hevel and it's actually difficult to translate this Hebrew word because the literal translation of it is talking about something like vapor or smoke a mist but what it's used to imply is the uselessness of it that this is a useless of something. So you'll see that word translated sometimes you'll see it translated as vapor sometimes you'll see it as mist, sometimes you'll see it as uselessness or meaningless or vanity but that's what it's talking about and someone once said that Hevel was used to describe the, the condensation that comes out of your mouth on a cold day that it is there and then it's gone <laughs> right? it didn't do anything, it was just there and it's completely useless and there's no need for it at all And oftentimes in Scripture we see that the same word is is used in connection with worshiping idols, and it's this action, this useless action of worshiping idols. It produces nothing. It's ultimately useless. It means nothing. And this is some parts, some way of how it's going to be used throughout Ecclesiastes. That this is useless actions. And as we walk through this book, you'll see that the author speaks of this uselessness, of this meaninglessness of trying to find satisfaction in created things. That's idol worship. When we try to find satisfaction in anything but God, that is idol worship. So clearly looking at this book, that, that something, people looking for something to replace God has been going on for 25 centuries. And we see it here in this book. It was as big a problem then as it is today. So the third thing that we learn from this is that the author then asks you a question to prove his point, to support his thesis. He wants you to believe his thesis, that all is meaningless. And so he asks this question, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So what's the use of all your work if you toil under the sun? Well, we have to know what he's referring to when he's talking about under the sun And this is something that we often miss, but when he refers to under the sun, throughout this book, he's referring to the earthly, right, the sinful man's perspective of everything that is happening down here on earth, right, he's not, he doesn't have God's thoughts in his mind, he's not looking at things from a heavenly perspective, he's not looking at things from above, he's looking at them from under the sun, from earth, right, and we know that God's thoughts are not our own thoughts, and we know that his ways are not our ways, And we do way better in life if we try to gain God's perspective than if we just settle for our perspective. Okay, so the author is going to start beginning here in verse 4. And he's going to start making the argument that our life is meaningless. That there's nothing that we can do to make it meaningful. However, we know that this is presented from the under the sun, from the earthly, from the fallen human perspective. That this is given to us from a sinful person that even in a a little bit he's going to start building up his credentials. But no matter how smart he is or how great he is, he is nothing compared to God. Right. So we are looking at it from his view. So just remember that as we continue this. We're going to continue in verse 4 of chapter 1. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has already it has been already in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. That's pretty depressing. as we read through that, and as we read through this passage, there's these points of repetitive cycles that we see throughout nature. And the author is using those examples that that there's nothing gained from all of our activity. Nothing ever is going to change. It's all going to be the same. No matter how much you toil, things will be the same. Nothing is going to change. His first example is that people come and go, kingdoms rise and fall, but guess what? The earth remains the same. The earth is still here. It's still doing the same thing. And he says that the the sun rises and it sets, just like it's done for over a thousand years. And just like it did today, and just like it will do tomorrow, and just like it will do the next day, and just like it will do until the day the Lord returns. And then he talks about the wind, and it blows from here to there, and then there to here, and then here to there, and then back again, and then all the, again, it just goes around in circles and just blows from one place to the other just to return where it started and then leave again. And then it talks about the rivers that are constantly flowing to the sea, but the sea never fills, and the rivers never stop flowing. The universe is trapped in this meaningless cycle that never ultimately accomplishes anything. And if we look at our lives, if we look at the human experience, we could start to say, oh, I, I see those cycles. This is not going to work out. Um, We can see. Every Sunday, the mic is broken. The mic is broken. It's a repetitive cycle we're living in. Uh, (laughs) um, But when we take this home, outside of the microphone, if we take it to another issue, like the dishes, right? Every time I say, Selah, do the dishes, because that's her job at our house. She says, I just did them. She's right. But somehow, dishes are never done right like laundry like what do we do when the laundry's done nobody knows we've never we never finished the laundry right it's always there it goes and it goes and it goes and what do our days look like in general right we wake up we go to school or work we do homework we make dinner we do a leisure time maybe play a game or talk on the phone or or watch tv and then we go to bed then we wake up in the morning what do we do Yeah, same thing, right? I don't need to keep repeating this. We all get it. Okay, this is not going to work. It all, we all do the same thing. But then, right, the weekend comes, and what do we do next weekend? The same thing we did last weekend, right? We, We start to see that cycle, and then Monday comes, and we start all over again. I'm losing here mike is beating me all right so to, to be honest the, the fundamental life remains the same i don't need to go through this we, we get it right we we wake up go to school or work come home do homework make dinner leisure time go to bed we do that for five days we look forward to saturday which is the same as last saturday we have sunday which is similar to the sunday before that and then we get back to monday which looks like the monday a couple days ago and we just keep going right it's the, The the fundamental events of our life really remain the same even if we back out. We, We are born, we go to school, marry, work, family, toil some more, retire, die. That's kind of how our life cycles work. And when you retire or die, the next day at your work somebody will replace you. Right, Somebody will replace you just as the sun rises and the earth uh, will remain. Uh, the business of the earth will go on and on and on without you. During a survey that was asked uh, to a bunch of retirees, um, they were asked what surprised them the most about retirement. And I don't remember all the answers, but there was one that stuck out to me, how quickly they were forgotten. Some of these people had poured their lives into a company, 20, 30, 40 years, and within two years, nobody knew who they were. Nobody at their company remembered them. Things will continue the way that they are with or without you. The author's point is that if this life is all there is, then there's no meaning in your life. Your life is meaningless. It's like Hemingway, he said it this way. He said, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. So this is his first argument, is that our, our lives are meaningless. And if you think you can't get worse, you should hear what his second argument is that we're about to read right now. Right? His second argument is, nothing will ever satisfy you. Right? Your, your life is going to be completely unsatisfiable. And that will be your life. So let's continue with what he says. We're going to continue in verse 12. And I need both hands, so I'm going to switch back to the, over the ear. You got me switched? I'll read loud. Starting in verse 12. So first he says our life's meaningless, and now he says that you're never going to be satisfied. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." Right, the Rolling Stones had it right when they said, no matter how much we try, we can't get no satisfaction. They stole that from the author of Ecclesiastes. I don't know. I hope they got royalties for that. But what it's telling us is our desires will never, ever be satisfied. Right? As we try to rearrange the pieces of our life and we search for satisfaction, didn't take long, right? And we find ourselves just as bored in the new job that we were in the old job. We are truly never, ever satisfied. right? If we seek a position or a a title or advancement or achievement, we quickly learn that the next thing we need to be satisfied is the next position, is the higher title. Look at Tom Brady. He's won seven Super Bowls. That's almost twice as much as the next guys who've won four. And when he was asked, what's your favorite Super Bowl victory? His answer was, the next one. Right? The next one. And if we seek money, then we find out we're, we're just like Rockefeller, who was the richest man in the world at his time. And they said, how much money do you need to have enough money? And he said, just one more dollar. Right? Just one more dollar. And the author also uses knowledge as an example here, that the, the more you learn, the more you realize how ignorant you are. Right, when we've all said it, the, the more that I learn, the less that I know. I have a friend of mine who has 10 academic degrees, three doctorates. He was a medical doctor before he went into ministry, and then uh, five masters, and then he's got a couple other things, and now he's working on a counseling degree because he wants to start doing counseling. He's younger than I am. Holy moly, right? But I asked him, like, I got lunch, what are you doing, man? Get a life. He's pastoring the church. He's the head of an international school, and he's going to school full-time, and he has a great family. He's pretty busy, right? But I said, what are you doing? Like, how do you do all this? And he's like, the more I go to school, the more I realize how much I don't know that I want to know. And so he just keeps going back to school. He keeps going back. But however, with knowledge comes this realization of things that we might not want to know, right? The more we learn, we start to Look at ourselves. We start to see sin in ourselves and sin in our world. I had a book that I was reading. I just finished it. It was sitting on my counter, and a friend came over who's not a Christian, and the book was about uh, an organization that was fighting sex trafficking. And he said, hey, can I, can I read that book? Can I borrow it? And I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Take it, take it home. So he reads it, and he brings it back to me. I said, what did you think? And he said, I would rather not read that and not know that that stuff goes on. Right? Once I was exposed to what's going on, that's painful. And as he gained that knowledge, he said, I'd rather not know that that's happening. Right? Knowledge doesn't always bring us joy and happiness, and oftentimes it increases our sorrow as it makes us more aware of the sin in our own lives, as it makes us more aware of the sin that is surrounding us and around the world. In verse 15, there's this metaphor, and he talks about that it's crooked, and that crooked is referring to the sin or the brokenness, and we see that throughout the wisdom scripture. We see that in Job and Proverbs. And what it's saying is that humanity has gone away, that it's turned around from its design, that it's left its creator. And because of our own sin, we can do nothing to fix or correct that problem, that we are crooked. It is going to take something besides us, something outside of us to fix this problem. Everything is broken in our world, and everything is broken in our lives, right? We try to find ways out of this brokenness, but we only end up more broken and more frustrated, We can't do enough, we can't earn enough, we can't know enough in life, and life just seems like a mess, and we're unable to fix anything or to stop the craziness from spinning. We are just in a spinning cycle of craziness most of the time. Some of you should say, Amen because you thought you were alone. It's the whole everybody. It's everybody. That's right. (laughs) And Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes gives us this bleak, depressing look on life but the Spirit had a purpose, right? There was a purpose for this book. The Spirit had a purpose for why He inspired this. And He wants to expose the meaningness of life, the meaningness of life in a cursed world in order to create a hunger for something better, in order for us to create a hunger for a Savior. And this intention is to lead us to faith and contentment in God. And as we will see... Introducing us to this reality of our brokenness in our life is actually a display of God's goodness and his grace in our lives. Right? He imposes the, this hopelessness in our lives that we would long for and that we would hope for him. If there is nothing that is acting on creation from outside of creation, then this is a closed system. It, it is what it is and we are held captive to mere chance and circumstances just admit it if if, if we were by chance and our life is by chance and circumstances and there's no real importance or significance to our lives and this is the hopelessness that is found for those who only know the earthly things for those who only know what is under the sun those that are held prisoner to their sin and they're trapped in their current state in this fallen world for those that have forgotten or for those that have turned from their creator. But that's not how it is for Christians. Christians are not prisoners. We are in this world. We live as pilgrims. We're, we're just visiting. Right? We're not chained to the, the meaningless things of this world. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing by. We find our life's joy and our confidence comes from the Lord. We find meaningful life in His meaning, uh, meaningful existence. We find satisfaction and contentment in who God is and what God has done. We find life in what He has given us, His Son, Jesus Christ. Our meaning in this world is not found in our titles or our bank accounts or any of our achievements, our meetings. Our meaning is found in Christ. It is found in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Our lives are not meaningless. Christ went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross for each of your lives. Paul reminds us of our lives in relation to the resurrection of Jesus. Of Jesus walking out of the grave, and Paul writes this, Therefore, and when he says therefore, he's referring to the resurrection in his letter. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? He says the exact opposite of what we're reading in Ecclesiastes. Right? Somebody who says there's, there's no God and there's no hope, your, your work is meaningless. And then Paul comes in and says, whoa! Because of the resurrection, because of the Lord, and knowing that the Lord is in your labor, it is not in vain. It is not useless. Right? The work that we do as Christians, that we glorify God through our lives, that's an evangelism, that we're telling other people about Jesus, that we're pointing to Jesus, that we're sharing the glory of Jesus, that we're discipling others, that we're helping others to grow, we're, we're helping others to, to love God, we're helping others to live like Jesus, we're, we're helping others to, to, to in life to glorify who Jesus is, to glorify Jesus. The work, right? the things that we do as Christians for the kingdom will bring results that will last forever. They will not perish. And through Jesus Christ, we have the ability to produce and develop and grow things that will last for all of eternity. They will never be forgotten. They will shine long after the sun goes out. We have to remember that the heavenly purpose to the earthly things. We have to remember the heavenly purpose to the toil and the work that we do. And so how do we do that? How do we remember that? What does that look like? Well, when we are serving our families, when we're washing the dishes, when we're doing laundry, how are we investing in the kingdom? Are we praying for those whose clothes we may be folding? Are we praying those maybe who will eat on those dishes that we're washing? Are we praying for them? When we earn a dollar, are we giving it back to God out of gratitude and worship as acts of expression of how much we love Him? Or maybe we're using it to support another mission or a ministry that is expanding the kingdom of God. With each promotion and greater influence, how are we sharing the hope and love of Jesus with those that come under our influence or our authority? And long after the earth stops spinning and the sun ceases to rise and the rivers are not flowing anymore, the work that we have done for Jesus and through Jesus will stand for all of eternity. It will still be there. And as we seek the Lord and walk with Him and join Him at His table, we know that our cup will overflow with goodness and His mercy. Our hearts will not only be satisfied, they will be overflowing with satisfaction. Right? This is the peace that becomes... Uh, surpasses all understanding. This is the joy that we can't express. And so as we read this Ecclesiastes and we keep the end state in mind, this is the message of Ecclesiastes is to turn from the meaningless, right? The, the emptiness of the fallen world and to remember your creator right? so that we would turn from the meaningless and emptiness of this fallen world and that we would put our faith in Jesus. And if you have never known Jesus as your savior, savior, then all that you work for and live for will ultimately perish. It will be forgotten, and it will mean nothing, and guess what? You will perish too. But faith in Jesus will bring you this gift of an abundant life and this privilege that you'll get of serving him and investing your years in that which will last for eternity, that will last forever. Life is not a boring tragedy or a meaning, meaningless if it is lived in the pursuit of knowing and following and glorifying Jesus. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. But it will be exciting. It will be filled with joy that you can't express. It will be filled with hope that will never run out. And it will be filled with peace that will surpass all understanding. Church, our our lives are not meaningless. Christ went to the cross for our lives. Our lives have purpose and work and value that Jesus sent his son for our lives and now we can work to serve him and produce things that will last for all of eternity. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we get to look at this word and we would just pray as we spend time in Ecclesiastes and as we look at our own lives as we are convicted of maybe some of the things in our life that are meaningless, maybe some of the things in our life that we have put above you in order to try to satisfy us. Lord, that you would convict us of those things and that you would show us they're meaningless and point us to the one true God who gives us abundant life. Lord, we just pray that as we go through Ecclesiastes, you would use this book to shape our hearts and refine our hearts use it to make us more like you and to love you more Lord we pray as we go through this book we would not get trapped in the meaningless cycles but we would find abundant life and experience the joy and the hope and the peace that you promise Lord we love you and we thank you and it's in your son's precious and holy name of Jesus we ask these things, Amen